Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic and you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Father Dan, welcome back to this, your podcast. Great to be back, Chris. Well, it's been uh, a busy couple of weeks. And as you referenced in some of your homilies recently, we're coming together today to talk about sort of all things um, Middle East and the conflict in Israel. And there's so much going on. It's hard to even know where to begin, isn't it? But, you know, this seems to start at least most conversations as a as a border dispute, way oversimplify thousands of years of conflict. But how do we even begin the conversation? Sure. I would say that there is no other way of beginning this conversation without beginning from the standpoint of our Catholic faith. Because in human terms, the situation in the Holy Land is utterly intractable. As you mentioned, the land that is being disputed has been argued about, fought over, counterclaims made for thousands and thousands of years. And if we don't seek to understand that from the eyes of faith, which is to say the, the power of entrusting oneself to what Jesus sees, we're, we're going to get mired in, in the political. So for example, every single human being has been created in the image and likeness of God. And it's deeply significant that at the outset of biblical relation, revelation, the human person is described as being formed by God from the land God reaches into the the humus, the soil of the earth, and fashions from that soil, that humus, the human person, which means that primordially are coming from the land, this land that God gives us, that our, our existence is a gift. And it also implies a certain transcendence. We're not reducible to soil. And what's fascinating is that in the biblical narrative, the first chapters of Genesis, which are essentially the sacred writer describing the intentionality of God, Adam, the first man, is placed in a garden. He's given uh, a portion of the earth, indeed the whole earth, to cultivate, 
he's given it as a stewardship. So he's not so much the owner and possessor as he is the, the one who has received a gift of which he is a steward. And what's fascinating is no sooner is sin introduced into the primordial human relationship than what happens? Exile and the displacement from the life in and the logic of the garden. And, and what is produced from that primordial exile? Well, the arguing of brothers that leads to fratricide. So no sooner are Adam and Eve exiled from the garden than Cain and Abel are disputing about the, the relation of, of their lives, their sacrifices to God, and, and the blood of Abel is, is spilled on the land, and Cain is, is exiled still further. But the exile, paradoxically, is, is a mercy to him. So Cain is, is fearful that his life is now marked by vengeance, but the, the going away east of Eden, the, the biblical text says, is God's protection of him. And to think that, that Christians to this very day are, are oriented to the spiritual east, you know, from which the, the sun comes up, there are deep, deep truths in all of this. And I don't want to rehearse the, the whole of biblical revelation in this podcast, but unless we actually spend some contemplative time going there to, to first principles, we're, we're not going to be able to come to terms, uh, God's terms, with, with what's going on. And so the descendants of Cain including uh, Lamech, who brags the, the people that he's killed. So Cain, when he killed his brother, was ashamed of it, sulked away. By the time we reach Lamech, he's bragging about the fact that he's being avenged 70-fold. And in an earlier homily on um, the gospel event of, of Peter asking Lord, how many times should I forgive? 70? Or, or he said seven. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. It's, it's precisely to undo the curse of, of Lamech, this endless cycle of vengeance. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut to the chase pretty quickly now. You know, our, our fundamental response has to be from the, the act of faith that Jesus Christ, God in our flesh, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that means the logic that we pursue is one of love. What is love? The commitment, the, the powerful commitment to pursue what is good, even for our enemies, even for those who would persecute us. So the fact that Jesus chose to be born into an occupied territory. So at the time of Jesus's birth, 
what we think of as the Holy Land, was entirely under Roman occupation. So the, the Jewish people at that time had no rights of, of sovereignty uh, worth speaking of. They had their faith in, in the Lord. The fact that the birth of Jesus takes place, you know, exiled even from a human shelter. <laughs> the Holy Family is reduced to giving birth in a barn, a uh, cave. It shows that the Lord understands from within what it is to be exiled, what it is not to have a place to call one's own. In Jesus's public ministry, he'll say that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the places that he stays temporarily are, are just that, they're, they're way stations. And on the cross, when he's lifted up from the earth, he's literally exiled from the, the, the very ground that he created and the ground that he sustains. The fact that his body is laid in the earth as a corpse should, should be deeply instructive for us about the, the consequences of, of human sin, the consequences of, of wanting to annihilate the other person, and the fact that he rises from the dead and gives his followers a commission not for territorial conquest, very important. He says, before he ascends to his heavenly father, at the end of St. Matthew's gospel, go, teach all nations, instruct them in, in everything that I've taught you, baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit, and know that I am with you always, until the end of the age. So again, mysteriously, paradoxically, Jesus sends his followers, these people who have, who have nothing but faith to every nation of the earth to claim human hearts for Christ so that the church becomes the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel, the, the chosen people formed of, of 12 scattered tribes reunited to be a kingdom. And for all the vicissitudes, the arguments, the dispersions, the occupations, the failures, God remains faithful to his promises. And in the mystery of the church, every people of every nation has uh, a place in belonging to the Lord. The Lord, I repeat, is Jesus Christ. And in the missionary work of the church to, to make sure that, that God is known and loved everywhere on the planet, that's the only way forward that I see. And we can go into more refined detail about what that means, but Actually, nothing short of the great commission that Jesus gave is, is going to provide the lasting solution to, to the, the apocalypse that, that we see before our eyes. It strikes me that just the choice of words, go forth to all nations, meaning there were multiple nations, and that means boundaries and, 
and lines yes, yes. <laughs> and sovereignties. He didn't say convert them all to X, Y, Z. He said, baptize them. It almost is almost as though he's understanding there, there'll still be Canadians and Americans and, oh, it's and so Spaniards. Good. Yes. That's so important. So the final vision given in the book of revelation is that people of every nation are gathered around God's throne and the cultural differences to the extent that that each culture produces different variations of, of authentically human good, those, those good differences uh, don't disappear, but they find their integrated place in the whole human race. When people argue with each other, they tend to use reductive language the language of animals. So, you know, these people are dogs, these people are beasts, or they use language of disease, you know, of, of pestilence that, you know, a disease that needs to be eliminated, or they even uh, refer to the demonic. So the, the evil one always seeks to infiltrate any given culture to turn people of goodwill against each other. But but, you know, you, you raise the intractable human drama. Where are the borders? What are the lines? How does a nation legitimately respect uh, boundaries? And, and, and how can a nation reasonably and rightly expect those who live within its boundaries to, to embrace uh, certain good activities and to shun certain evil activities. I mean, it's it's overly simplistic to ask, and I just a memory of reading about President John F. Kennedy during the election. But this idea: Am I a Catholic or I'm an American? Which am I? Where is my allegiance? And then, how could I be at war with other Catholics from other countries that wear a different jersey? Yeah. No, these are huge questions. <laughs> we'll, we'll do as many podcasts as people can tolerate on these. I would say this, the tension of being American and Catholic can be acutely felt because patriotism is a natural virtue. It, it, it is a power of, of good um, to the extent that we think of ourselves as, you know, cosmopolitan citizens of the world. We're living in a world of, of abstraction and, and a kind of globalist elite like perfectly embodies this, this tragedy. But to be citizens of heaven, which uh, is what we are uh, by baptism, as adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, members of the body of Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit, um, if, if we are in fact citizens of heaven, that implies, as St. Peter will point out in his first letter, that we are simultaneously strangers and sojourners. We are pilgrims on this earth, which means that our relation to any given land in which we find ourselves, our relation to it is going to be relative, not in a negative sense, but just it's always going to be placed in relation to God. So if I were to be kidnapped or exiled from the land of my birth, the land where I currently live, I would still remain a citizen of heaven. And, and that, that is my identity. And I, I have to say that being 
Americans, there is a, there's a particular temptation to misunderstand what many, many, many people in the world have historically lived and what they continue to live. Namely, our country was basically founded on people who were seeking a new life from lands they were leaving, whether they were forced to leave, you know, deliberately exiled, or whether they were uh, drawn by, by better prospects, you know, facing persecution and hardship. Our nation has been constituted from the beginning by a multiplicity of different nationalities, different cultures, and in a sense, the, the legal and civilizational aspirations of our country are, are very much about integrating people into this, this project. And this project involves the distinction of church and state, for example, the, uh, what some would call the, the separation of, of the religious and the political. And there, there's, a, there's a temptation to think that that project is somehow uniquely or even magically uh, blessed by God. Even the chosen people themselves, as the biblical witness shows, <laughs> fail in their fidelity to the Lord's promises and, and suffer the consequences. So the fact that our nation was formed by people leaving one life to form another, in most parts of the world, there's, there's much more rootedness uh, over many more centuries than, than Americans are, are, are used to. I mean, I, I realize I'm speaking in very general terms, but, but French people, for example, uh, many of them can, can trace the French identity back far longer than, than we've existed. So the fact that it, just in the most simplistic terms, you have Palestinian people who have claims to a particular land um, dating back centuries. And on the part of the Jewish people, you have counterclaims also dating back centuries. It's not to create a false equivalence. It's just to say that these are existential questions where people perceive that their identity is so bound up with the land that it is tempting to want to either displace or eliminate anyone else uh, or suffer displacement or elimination uh, oneself. So for example, the fact that Hamas has as part of its governing charter, the extermination of the Jewish people from the land internationally recognized uh, as the state of Israel. From the river in, to the sea or the chance. From the river to the sea. In yeah. 19, you know, 1948, the state of Israel uh, set up. That, that is uh, an intractable dispute in those terms to solve. So, But to interrupt you, it's not like Alabama 
and Mississippi fighting over the Florida panhandle. They didn't want the extermination of the other. To your point, the Palestine shall be free from the river to the sea actually means the elimination of the Jewish people. Yes. I'm not sure everyone fully appreciates that. Yes. And um, again, I make no pretension to be an expert on uh, the politics of these things. Still less do I pretend to have uh, a solution. It is to say that the Jewish state in 1948 was founded in the wreckage of World War II and also the, the British occupation of Palestine. And as part of the, the British imperial plan, uh, there was a deliberate intent to create, so this is before 1948, but a, a deliberate attempt to create uh, countries in such a way that the, the different tribal groups would be pitted in opposition to each other in the hopes of keeping those populations arguing amongst themselves in such a way that it wouldn't pose a larger threat to uh, larger groups in the world. The classic example here is Iraq. So you have a portion of it uh, being created from the, the Sunni Muslims, a portion from the Shias, a portion from the Kurds. So Iraq as a country is an abstraction. It's a, it's a fabrication put together uh, by a retreating imperial power precisely to to keep people arguing at a lower level so they're not causing trouble at a at a at another level. The fact that so you have millions of of Jewish people exterminated, you have a, a, a genocide. You also have in the formation of the state of Israel hundreds of thousands of Jewish people being expelled from Arab countries. So not simply freely migrating, but expelled, displaced to this, this new territory, this new entity, the state of Israel. Now, for this to happen, there are land seizures uh, from the Palestinian people. And I, I am friends with certain Christian Palestinians who, who know people in their, their families and their friends who still have the keys to the home from which they were expelled. I mean, it, it's unthinkable for the average American to think about the fact that, you know, for example, you know, a portion of Indiana could just be seized and all of a sudden one day somebody else is living in my house and I didn't sell them the house and they took the house. And so these claims and counterclaims, I, I repeat, I don't want to create some type of uh, general equivalence, but it is to say that the, the complexity of the, the migrations and the displacements and the recovering from exterminations, these are existential realities that all of the people involved in this situation have lived over the course of generations. Mm. It's, it's in the, 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 the psychological and, and also aspirational genetic code of of the families and the, the tribes and the, the, the national identity. And, and to make the pure geography part more complex, simplistically, doesn't it boil down to Jerusalem? 
And we have this area of land that both parties, if you will, can never see eye to eye on. Um, Correct. And, you know, I should point out before speaking about Jerusalem that, you know, the state of Israel, both in 1967 and 1973, had, you know, existential threats to its existence and took territory to prevent that from happening again. And that paradoxically wound up exacerbating the problems. And so whether it's the the Gaza Strip or the other, the other territories that there's the desire to create, you know, a, a buffer zone, but then one becomes responsible for the people living in the buffer zone and, you know, the settlements so when it comes to Jerusalem, the, the city, you know, the, carving it up into different regions, you know, even when it comes to the, the Holy Sepulcher itself, you know, even the different Christian groups arguing about square footage and, and disputes going back centuries, it, it, it does get down to that a fine-grained level of of antagonism. So what we see played out, you know, on the West Bank, for example, you know, the border of, of, of Lebanon and Israel, the, the microcosm is, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood, building to building, and then within a building, the different, the different parts of it. In human terms, I, I keep using the word intractable, nothing short of, of conversion to Jesus Christ for as impractical and wild as that seems is, is going to provide a long-term way forward because Christ gave his life for the good, even of his enemies. He relentlessly pursued the good of his enemies, even at the cost of his own life. And it doesn't mean that Christians have to be suckers or doormats, but it just means that in our own living of our life, our own stewardship of what we've been given, our own gratitude uh, for where we live, we, we have to be about the cultivation of deep, broad networks of people who are committed to pursuing what is good that's actually quite an exciting adventure and, and also focusing on what's closer to our immediate sphere of influence, just in, in personal terms, we can get overwhelmed with everything happening in the world, you know, to the extent that we ourselves can be agents of tenaciously seeking what is good for, for other people. That's the Royal road forward. What, for the average Catholic listening, what should our posture or approach or, or perspective be on the news of the day with the conflict uh, in Israel? How do we even begin to, to think about that? Are we praying for the good guys over the bad guys? Are we, are we mournful over the atrocities, of course? But how do we begin to, to even wrap our brains around that. I think it's important, first of all, to get our own hearts in order, the hatreds, antagonisms that we harbor 
in our own hearts for people who have hurt us, for people whom we may have hurt, and to start there. And it's, it's not the ostrich putting its head in the sand and uh, just focusing on itself. It's, it's actually allowing the Lord to make us instruments of peace where we are. Now, in terms of aiding populations, I, I have to say our, our first priority, I believe, uh, would be the Christians of the Holy Land because they are the forgotten ones and they are the ones hard-pressed by both sides. So in the Jewish state's attempt to protect its integrity, indeed its survival, in the Palestinian Muslim majority attempt to promote a state for themselves, for their survival, uh, the ones who are ignored and oppressed and displaced at the highest percentages are the, the Christians. And so, for example, when we take up the, the collection on Good Friday for the church in the Holy Land, this, this is a very concrete way in which we can express through our stewardship solidarity. And again, I, I'm friends with Palestinian Christians Whose, whose home is literally Bethlehem. And in the years since I visited uh, Bethlehem, there have been all sorts of illegal settlements that have been not just tolerated, but actually promoted by the, the Israeli government. And it's just profoundly unhelpful. And the attempt is on, on the part of so many both Israelis and Pal Palestinian uh, Muslims to squeeze out anyone who isn't themselves. And uh, it's not to say that, that every Christian is, is somehow <laughs> you know, blameless without fault. Um, but it is to say that the presence of Christians in the Holy land goes back thousands of years and their numbers are fewer and fewer. And not just in the, the Middle East, but, but around the world, inevitably, uh, the victor attempts to rewrite history and to exterminate any, any vestige of anyone else having a claim to, you know, a particular part of, of land. So I would, I would say to, to, to begin with the Christians of the Holy Land would be a, a gesture of both justice and charity. You, you know, you referenced uh, Good Friday, and I'm reminded that we, um, in our liturgy, we actually pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters, particularly uh, at Easter, and and we we even pray for their conversion. But it brings up maybe say something about the relationship of Catholics to Jews. We're it's often said that as Catholics, we're very Jewish and our history and our traditions, but what, what is our relationship, not only to Israel as a, as a sovereign country, but, but to Judaism? It's ironic. There are <laughs> any number of rabbis who are actually grateful at a, at a basic level to the church for making the promises that the Lord made to Israel universally known. 
In other words, if it weren't for the Catholic Church for centuries spreading the news that you know the Lord in his plan called the Jewish people to be a people peculiarly his own. Now wrapped up in this is also human sin and the attempt on the part of some Christians at some points in history to attribute to the Jewish people a kind of collective fault for the crucifixion of, of the Savior. And when this is narrated in the Gospels, the narration of certain members of the Jewish crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us and on our children, is is actually intended by the sacred author to be the incorporation of those people in the Lord's mercy, like the, the blood of the lamb of Jesus, the lamb saving and, and offering the, the possibility of salvation, even to those who had a hand in putting him to death. Because so we're all, we're all in that crowd, aren't we? We all <laughs> exactly in our sin are saying, crucify him, crucify him. So the, the classic example here, of course, would be St. Paul, faithful Jew, who lived in, in his own lifetime, the, the proposal of the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel, the proposal of, of Jesus as the Christ, and it was accepted by some of the Jews and it was refused by others of the Jews. And St. Paul will work out in his letters, especially uh, his letters to uh, the church in Rome, the church in Galatia, but also in other letters, he'll try to work through what it means for God to remain faithful to his promises because to the Israelites, you know, belong covenants and and the promises, uh, the grace. And on the other hand, the refusal of, of certain Jews to acknowledge Christ as the fulfillment of these gifts paradoxically led to the Gentiles, the non-Jews accepting this and actually like inheriting all sorts of, of, of graces that are, are still there for, for all who will accept them. So the church is the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Uh, in that sense, the church is the, the new Israel not, not in a sense that relegates the promises God made to his chosen people to the past. Book of Revelation, the representatives of the 12 tribes are front and center around the throne of the Lamb. But it is to say that there is a universalization of those promises that comes from Jesus Christ. And that gift is for everyone. The gates of the heavenly Jerusalem are open in all directions to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, which means that in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, all of the promises made to Israel are ultimately fulfilled. And I, I think for especially Americans, we, we have to be careful that the, the state of Israel constituted in 1948 is not to be conflated with earlier narratives of, of, of land and land rights. The Jewish people remain beloved by the Lord. 
but that love also contains obligations in justice to those who are displaced. It's right there in the the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, One isn't to oppress or molest the alien, the displaced living in one's land. So the, the territorial disputes about what belongs to whom, those actually have to be adjudicated at a legitimately political level. The, the, the other challenging thing for us in the United States to understand is that Americans tend to be brought up bracketing religious commitment as something private and optional. You know, so religious freedom in the United States cashes out as freedom from religion as much as it is freedom for religion. In most parts of the world, and certainly in the Middle East in general, Holy Land in particular, the union of religion and politics is tight. And it is in the genetic code of, of Judaism in one way and Islam in another to be very tied to territory for identity. And that can often be lived as a kind of either or in which the enemy needs to be eliminated rather than accommodated. Do you feel like our, meaning America's, relationship to Israel, uh, it's relatively new because the country's only existed since 1947, but it's fair to say, I think most observers would, would note that we have a rather unique relationship as Americans with Israel. Do you feel like that's a, um, a political relationship? Is it a, a religious relationship because of the connections between Christianity and Judaism or both? I think all of the dimensions of that are present. Obviously, the, the geopolitical, the, the strategic interest of the United States in having in the, the midst of a world dominated by the politics of Islam in all of their different uh, arrangements, to have Israel as what would be labeled a modern, liberal, secular state in the minds of some would be very, very ad- advantageous. The, the actual political, religious situation of the state of Israel is enormously complex. So there's a portion of Israeli society that is, is orthodox in the practice of its Judaism. And the state essentially subsidizes uh, this portion of the population to study the Torah. And the Orthodox have very large families traditionally. And there's a different sense of of contributing to the state that that causes great tensions uh, in Israeli society between secular Jews and the 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 orthodox observant ones. And again, I repeat, I am no expert commentator on this. I'm simply offering these general insights to show to you know the the listeners from my my flock at St. Vincent's uh, the the enormous complexity of of what's going on. So in, in religious terms, you add to it the fact that in certain strands of evangelical Christianity, the the Jewish people are necessary uh, for the the coming of 
of the Messiah. And so there are all sorts of groups, uh, some of them, for example, in Shia Islam, so that would be represented by Iranian society, that, that have this apocalyptic belief that this needs to happen or that needs to happen to trigger the end times. And once we get into that kind of logic and strategizing, it produces civilizational chaos. And it winds up bringing about the demonic uh, victories that, that just keep multiplying misery for everyone. And so, you know, in the end, you know, it, it's the devil who gains the short-term victory in, in these resentments being, being furthered. Well, final thoughts for the weeks ahead as, um, as the battle rages, so to speak, uh, in the Holy Lands. I would say that we need to make Jesus's beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, the attitude of our heart. And we need to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Prince of Peace in our hearts first, in our relationships second, in the networks of friendship that we form third, in the stewardship and solidarity that we express, especially to our, our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who are very hard pressed and whatever we can do to support those people in charge of promoting, safeguarding the tranquility of order in, in their bringing people together for, for long-term solutions, even if it's neighborhood by neighborhood, region by region. I, I think that, uh, that's, that's the road ahead, but I repeat nothing short of, uh, missionary discipleship and proposing conversion to Jesus Christ, the crucified risen King of Kings, Lord of Lords is going to advance the deepest aspirations of the human race for the most basic thing, uh, you know, a, portion of this earth to call home for a time, to steward it in, in peace and tranquility, to share amidst the scarcity of resources uh, the good things that the Lord has given us, and to pursue what is good even, even for our enemies, even for those who would persecute us. That is what Jesus commands us because that's who he is, and that's, that's what it is to be a Christian. Amen. Amen. Well, listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily. We hope that you will strive for and pray for peace. Peace in our hearts, in our relationships, our families, and of course, peace in the Middle East, uh, where peace is so needed. Are there topics that you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Or do you have questions that you'd like him to answer? If so, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line. Or you can message me directly at 
888-888-8878. And please start the message with After the Homily. And of course, a special thanks to our friends at Spoke Street Media, without whom this podcast would really be impossible. You can enjoy an endless variety of really amazing Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.